Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now last week we looked at the first part of Genesis 18. And there we particularly saw of how God, along with two angels, in the form of a, you know, they had come in the form of three human beings. And they came to visit Abraham. And what it was portraying was what God wanted to show was the intimacy of the relationship that he had with Abraham. That it was not simply a, a, a strong bond, a covenant relationship, but it was an intimate relationship as well. An intimate relationship where the king of all the universe is so pleased to reveal his heart and mind to those who are in this relationship. And we saw how it also alluded to the fact, it showed the fact that Abraham was truly then a friend of God as he was given that title in the Old Testament and we see that even in the New Testament. And then beyond that we saw of how while Sarah wasn't quite there with regards to how her faith was and how her reliance on God was, God draws near to her as well. That even in our failings, even in our weaknesses, even in our sin, God is not ashamed to draw close to us. And God graciously exposed the sin in Sarah's heart. So that then she would realize and know who this God is and so that her faith would be built up. So that's what we saw last week. And really we saw of how great a host Abraham was in serving the Lord and his two angels. Now this morning, we're going to understand some more about God. Abraham also is going to understand something more about God and particularly his righteousness. And really, by implication, we too will understand something about the righteousness of the Lord. And we will see what it means then to respond to this righteous God. And we'll even think through then what that means in terms of interceding or praying for others. I've titled this morning's sermon as God will do what is right. See, because God is righteous and he will do only what is right. And we'll see this under two headings, under two scenes really. In verses 16 to 21, we'll see the rightness of God in God's revelation. And then in verses 22 to 33, we'll see the rightness of God in Abraham's petition. So firstly, God's revelation, verse 16. It says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So Abraham here is still being a good host. And he knows now this is the Lord and his two messengers or his two angels. So even as they leave, Abraham is walking them out. It's like how we would, you know, walk our guests out to the door or perhaps even to the car. Something of the sort is what Abraham is doing here, perhaps to the outer boundary of his property of where he's living. And where we find them, Abraham and the Lord and the two angels, is at the edge of the hills of of the place that uh, Abraham is living in. And they're looking down at the valley. Looking down particularly at Sodom and Gomorrah, which is down in the valley. 
And that's the area somewhere near the Dead Sea. And we know previously from Genesis 13, 13, that Sodom and Gomorrah was known to be a terribly wicked place. And if you remember, that was the place where Lot decided to go to because on the outside, it looked very prosperous. It was very luscious. So they're all looking down and Abraham is there in the company of the Lord and the angels. And at this point, the Lord poses a question. Verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? But what's the Lord going to do? Well, He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And here... The thing is this, the Lord really wants Abraham to know that this is what he's going to do. He wants the people everywhere to know that the destruction that would come upon Sodom and Gomorrah, it wasn't simply a naturalistic phenomenon. Or somehow some fire and brimstone came from the sky, some freak of nature happened, and you know, all the people there died. No, he wants the people to know for certain that this is the judgment of God against a wicked and unrighteous people. And so the Lord will not hide from Abraham what he's going to do. And remember, he's got a special close connection with Abraham. Abraham is a friend of God. In fact, one theologian made this good observation stating that the Lord is showing Abraham the kind of relationship that should exist within those in this close covenant relationship. The Lord himself is modeling what it looks like to be in a close relationship like this. It's a relationship that should characterize honesty and integrity and fidelity and openness and transparency. See, because when you think about Abraham and Sarah, I mean, they're liars. Remember Abraham when dealing with Pharaoh, he lied? We saw last week that Sarah even lied and even tried to cover up. And rather than being loyal to the Lord and waiting on his promise, we've seen even Abraham and Sarah, they took things into their own hands by using Hagar to get a child. So they're not particularly loyal to the Lord. They're not particularly truthful people. They're not models of what it means to be in close, intimate covenant relationship with the Lord. So the Lord is modeling what this covenant relationship should look like. It should be a relationship that is characterized by righteousness and integrity and openness and a transparency. Psalm 25.14 says this, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. That this friendship of the Lord, it is an intimate relationship where He doesn't hide things. Where He makes known the secrets of His heart and His mind to those in that relationship. So that then in the relationship, there is a two-way openness of heart and mind to one another. And so the Lord is being open to Abraham and he gives two specific reasons why he will not hide from Abraham what he's about to do. And the first reason is this, because the Lord will reveal to Abraham that he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of the close intimate relationship, because of the covenantal relationship. Look at verse 
uh, 17 and then 18. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now we know these promises. These are promises that God first gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. And over the years in the life of Abraham, God has reiterated it in some form or the other. And, and we know that these are part of God's covenant promises. It's for those who are in this close, intimate relationship. So the Lord is essentially telling Abraham, I want you to know my heart. I want you to know my purposes. See, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of their unrighteousness. But I want you to be assured that the same will not happen to you. Why? Because of the close, intimate relationship I have with you. And so because of that, you, on the other hand, will surely be a great nation and you will become an instrument of blessing to the rest of the nations. I will surely bring this about. So you don't have to be concerned that what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen to you. So there's a sense in which the Lord is both assuring Abraham that because of the close relationship that he will be blessed and will be a channel of blessing rather than receive the judgment of God. At the same time, the Lord is also reminding Abraham of the privilege of the relationship that he is in. See, because not everyone is in this kind of close, intimate relationship with the Lord. The people in Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, are those who will receive the judgment of God because they're not in this intimate relationship. So he wants Abraham to understand the privilege of this relationship as well and be assured in this relationship. So the first reason the Lord will not hide from Abraham what he's going to do is because of that close covenant relationship. Reminding him and assuring him of the privilege of the relationship. Now the second reason why the Lord will not hide from Abraham what he's going to do is because of the covenant responsibility. Because of the covenant responsibility. Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. See, the Lord is saying, the reason why I chose Abraham, the reason why I sovereignly called out this pagan idol worshiper and set my grace on him is not just for the benefit of himself, but for the benefit of others as well. For the sake of his children and the rest of his family, so that they too would walk in the way of the Lord. That's why I have chosen him. See, the Lord is saying, you have a covenant responsibility, Abraham, right now, to raise up the next generation and the rest of, the, rest of your household in my ways. That's part of the reason why I chose you and why I drew you near to me and I have drawn near to you. And notice it says that Abraham is commanded are told to command his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now, righteousness and justice, it's really conveying uh, one concept. You know, you can take it together. Uh, uh, it's just one meaning portrayed by two different words. And this righteousness and justice, that pair, is what will later be embodied in the law of God. 
And what is the law of God? It's nothing but a reflection of the character of God. Such that when people live according to the law of God, they are reflecting the character of God. Now when you think of the law of God, uh, let's just think of the Ten Commandments for a moment. Think of the first four commandments. They, they pertain to how a person is to relate to God, the, the vertical relationship. And then the next six it pertains to the horizontal relationship, how one needs to relate to the other in the covenant relationship. So it's really the, the loving God and the loving neighbor as you follow the law of God. And as you follow the law of God, when you do that, love God and love neighbor, you are essentially living righteously and justly. So when it says, for example, don't steal or bear false witness, the flip side then, and elaborated in other parts of the law, is to be honest, to uphold truth, to uphold righteousness and justice. And instead of stealing, the, the flip side is then to be generous towards others, showing no partiality. When it says don't kill, the, the flip side then is then promote life. Defend the weak and orphans and the widows among you. Upholding righteousness, upholding justice. And it's the same for all the other commandments. This is what it means to love God, which is then expressed in love for neighbor where the people are then living righteously and justly according to the way of the Lord, reflecting His very character. One commentator put it like this, it's the whole course of life lived in conformity to the covenant. Or you could say it's the life lived under the rule of God according to the word of God. That's the life that God is talking about here. This is essentially what it means to walk before the Lord blamelessly. The same thing that the Lord had told Abraham. It's just elaborating on this a bit more. So here's the thing. Not only was Abraham to walk before the Lord, he had a responsibility to ensure that his whole household walked before the Lord. See, the Lord chose Abraham to establish not just one person, but to establish a whole people who would keep the way of the Lord, who would reflect his character and become a channel of blessing to others by being righteous and just even in the way they live. So then, that would mean then Abraham would have to teach the way of the Lord to Isaac and the rest of his household. And Isaac then in turn would have to teach the way of the Lord to Jacob and so on and so forth. And finally, they would become the nation of Israel. And even with the nation of Israel, it's the same thing. All the, nation, all the families then within the nation were to walk according to the way of the Lord and they were to teach it to their children and represent the Lord in their living so that they would reflect the character of God. And here's the thing. Teaching his household to keep the way of the Lord, it was the means by which God's promise to Abraham to become a great nation and to be a blessing to the other nations would be fulfilled. That was the means that God was going to use to fulfill his promise. So, so, so think about this now. So knowing the covenant obligation that Abraham has to teach his household, that God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, th that would serve as an object lesson 
as he's teaching his household, as he's teaching his children, that if you forsake the way of the Lord and live in unrighteousness, it will lead to your ruin and God's judgment will fall on you. So there would be an urgency for him to teach his household the way of the Lord. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? That didn't just happen. That was God's judgment. Follow the Lord. Follow the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is good and true and right and just. Oh, this is the blessed path. And to reject the Lord's way is to suffer the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we don't have exactly the same role as Abraham had because he had some very specific roles. But as believers in Jesus Christ, there are certainly some overlapping principles. For those of us who are parents, we're called to bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's what Ephesians 6.4 says. To teach our children and to discipline our children in the way of the Lord. And to set before them a godly example. And yet sometimes parents can neglect this call. And, and, and totally miss the point that one of the reasons why God saved them as Christians is to bring up the next generation in the ways of the Lord. If you're a Christian, if you're a parent, understand this. One of the reasons why God chose you and saved you is for you to bring up your children in the ways of the Lord. Now, parents can sometimes totally neglect this call or even delegate this responsibility to others. You know, perhaps the grandparents, or, or, you know, they'll do that job. Or perhaps the Sunday school teachers. You know, or perhaps somebody else in the church or whoever else. Yes, they all play a part for sure. But the primary responsibility of raising children in the way of the Lord falls squarely on the parents. And if I were to be more specific, falls on the father. Because he's the head of the home. And I don't say this self-righteously. Because even as I've examined my own life, I know how much I fall short. But yet, this is why the Lord has called us out and if he has given you children. And you know, sometimes parents can also have this wrong idea that, you know, I don't want to impose anything on my child. You know, I want them to make their own choices, you know, even from a young age. I would say by the authority of Scripture, that is a wrong thinking. See, the children are not old enough to make decisions about a lot of things. Let alone spiritual things. Then how do we think that for spiritual things which have supreme importance that they can make decisions when they're that young? And parents, I want you to think of this. The world is daily imposing its beliefs on our children. They don't take permission. And so it would be a horrible thing to let the child go their own way and the parents totally neglect their children and not bring them up in the ways of the Lord. Proverbs 22 6 says Train up a child in the way he should go even when he is old he will not depart from it 
Now, I've talked about this verse a few years ago, but I want to bring it up again. See, this is not a general proverb of how to parent. That's how many people have taken this verse to be. You know, as some kind of blessing that children will turn out to be godly adults if you raise them properly. That's not actually what the text is saying. In fact, if you look in the original, there is no should as seen in most of the English translations. You know, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go, that should is actually not there in the original. So really, a better translation would be, train up a child in the way he goes. Or in other words, train up a child according to his own way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So what that means is, if you simply allow your child to live according to his way, according to his own whims and standards and fancies, then the child will train himself in that, and even when he is old, he will not depart from that way. So more than a proverbial blessing, it's a proverbial warning to parents. That if you let your child go, make them make their own decisions, make them listen to their wicked heart, and just let them be that way, they will train themselves in that, and they will not depart from it even when they're old. The parents are commanded and have a responsibility to teach their children and to discipline their children in the way of the Lord. Now this doesn't mean, therefore, automatically the child will become a Christian if you do this. But generally speaking, when a child is brought up according to the way of the Lord in the home, that is the means that God generally uses to bring that child to saving faith. See, and it's not just children. It's other family members. Others in a you know, sphere of life, whatever that may be. It may be a spouse. It may be a parent, or a grandparent, or a co-worker, or a sibling, or a friend, or a neighbor. Christian, understand this. The reason why God saved you and put you in that person's life is so, that, is so you can tell them of the judgment of the Lord of walking in unrighteousness and then tell them the way of the Lord that has been provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why God has saved you and placed you in that person's life. And I would even say that this living according to God's way, it's not just about evangelism with our dear ones and friends. But it's about even living together, encouraging one another. That when you teach each other the, the way of the Lord, that we are to regularly remind ourselves of that. That when I'm failing in my parenting, when I'm failing living as a pastor or as a brother or whatever, that you would be loving to come and tell me, hey brother, what is going on here? Is everything okay? And that I would do the same and, and we're constantly encouraging and building each other up in the Lord. See, because God never wanted believers right from the start to, to be all by themselves and to be just thinking about myself, so long as I'm following the Lord, so long as I'm believing the Lord, and I'm overcoming sin, I don't have to care about anybody else. That has never been God's pattern at all. In fact, if there's a Christian here who simply thinks, or the Christian life is simply about following the Lord, overcoming sin, and I'm so glad and happy, and I don't have to care about anybody else, they've got a completely faulty view of Christianity.
The reason why God saves a person is so that then that person can represent Jesus in the way they live and tell others about Jesus and be a blessing to others and even tell them that if they don't follow the way of the Lord, there is coming judgment. So why is the Lord not going to hide the fact that he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah from Abraham? Firstly, so Abraham can be assured that he's in close covenant relationship and that the blessings promised will indeed come to pass, even though that's what's going to happen to those lot there. And secondly, because Abraham has a covenant responsibility to ensure that his children and the rest of his household keep the way of the Lord. Because otherwise, what is going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen to his household. Judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah would serve as a warning to not neglect the Lord's way. Now verse 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now with regards to the sins of Sodom, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16 verses 49 and 50 says this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. See, the people of Sodom, they were self-centered, not thinking about others, indulging in the excesses. They didn't care about those in need. And then beyond that, there was, of course, the rampant sexual perversion that was there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the Lord tells Abraham the outcry of those who are afflicted and oppressed by those in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's great. Their outcry, those who are being afflicted, it's come up to me. That the Lord hears the cries of injustice and unrighteous things done to others. You know, it's, it's similar to when the blood of Abel, remember? When he was killed and the blood of Abel cried out to the Lord for justice to be done. You know, it's a comforting thought. To know that every injustice reaches the year of the Lord. See, because even if it escapes human justice systems, no injustice will ever escape the all-seeing judge of all the universe. And that's a comforting thought for us when we see all this injustice around So the Lord says, so the outcry has come to me. And then he says, I will go down and investigate to see if the deeds of Sodom and Gomorrah were as bad as the outcry indicated. Now here's a question. Doesn't the Lord know exactly what is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, he knows exactly what is going on. See, there is never a time when the Lord is not learning anything, either from the past or from the present or looking into the future. No, He is the all-knowing God who knows all things because He's sovereign over all things and sovereignly ordains all things. 
But then, but then you say, but why does then the Lord have to go down and investigate? Well, that's for the benefit of human beings. That's for the benefit of Abraham and then the benefit of even us who are reading God's word right now. See, because this is the Lord using human language to help us understand something about the Lord. See, because the Lord is present everywhere, right? So he's not just isolated to one place. So he's using this language of going down to investigate the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah to let us know that he's actually, when the Lord is going to bring about judgment, it's based on right information. That he will put the outcry he will scrutinize everything to make sure the outcry matches the injustice and then he will mete out his judgment. God's judgment is based always on right information. The Lord's judgment, it's never random, it's never uninformed. He never pours out his judgment on a whim just because he can no, he's a righteous judge who will judge based on fact. And judgment will be served only where it is rightly deserved. And again, that's a comforting truth for us, isn't it? Who know the Lord. See, because human judges, even the best of them, don't always have all the information. And even with whatever information they have, they can make the wrong judgment. But our Lord knows everything. His judgment is always based on full knowledge of the fact. His judgment is always deserving. He never meets our judgment if it is not deserved. So what does God do? Then he sends out to his two angels to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. To let us know that he's establishing the facts about the sin of Sodom. To establish the fact that they're indeed guilty and deserving of judgment. You know, in fact, many years later when the law is established, God will put the same thing in place. Because again, what is in the law is a reflection of his character. That a person to be pronounced guilty should always be based on fact. Only with the evidence of two or three witnesses. As it reflects the righteousness and the justice of God. Just like what God is doing here as he sends his two messengers to investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, even in the New Testament, in the case of church discipline, when you think about it in Matthew 18, 16, that is, if a person is living in unrepentant sin and refuses to listen to a brother or a sister, then what are you to do? You are to take two or three others with you to establish the facts in the presence of two or three witnesses. It's the same principle. You are reflecting the very character of God. God is righteous. And that's what we see in God's revelation here. Now how will Abraham respond to this? I'm going to quickly look at Abraham's petition in verses 22 to 33. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. That's the angels. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Abraham still stands before the Lord. You know, at this point, after Abraham listened to all this, he could have said, oh yes, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, oh, those wicked people, serves them right. That's what they deserve. But he doesn't do that. 
as Abraham is processing God's revelation. Remember, he doesn't have the scriptures. He's, he's just going by what God is telling him right now. Abraham now draws near to God and pleads before the Lord, interceding for others, but at the same time he's drawing near to God to also try and get to know God more. Here's how one commentator put it. Quote, Abraham began a conversation with the Lord in which he interceded for Sodom. Yet he was also trying to get to know God better. He was in effect asking God about his character and trying to understand the balance between justice and mercy, grace and judgment. Close quote. So verse 23 says, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, first and foremost, we can say that Abraham, as he's thinking through this and the implications of this, if God's going to send out, meet out his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he knows his extended family is there. His nephew Lot and family are living in Sodom. So he's, he's thinking about him and his family. And so the righteous person here that Abraham is talking about, it's the person who has faith in the Lord God and the person who follows the way of the Lord. And one of those people is, is Lot. In fact, Second Peter will tell us that Lot was a righteous person even though you know, so much of his life doesn't look much like a righteous person or a child of God. And here's Abraham's concern. That if God destroys the whole city, that the righteous would be treated the same as the wicked. That God would essentially be punishing the righteous along with the wicked. I like what... Um, a commentator has said about this. Quote, Abraham was wrong in supposing that the righteous cannot suffer the same tragedies as sinners. Abraham was wrong-headed, not wrong-hearted. Then he goes on to say, Abraham's charge came from having never imagined that it could be possible for the righteous and sinners to fall to the same trauma at the sovereign hand of God. Unlike us, Abraham did not have the benefit of all the scriptures. I mean, we have the rest of scripture, right? And we know how God deals with the righteous and the unrighteous. And so when you think of, for example, when you think of the life of Israel, as a nation, when the Lord's judgment came on them as, as a nation, when they turned away from the Lord and they were taken away in exile, even the righteous few came under that judgment. Oh, in Luke 13, 4, you know, where it talks about the tower that fell in Siloam and 18 people died. Jesus says that those people who died were no greater sinners than the rest of the people in Jerusalem. Or as we think of history, where we know of so many righteous people who have been persecuted and killed. Or when nations or large part of nations were destroyed, the righteous believers were also killed during that time. But here's one thing we need to keep in mind. That these are temporal calamities, temporal judgments. There's a distinction, however, in God's eternal judgments with regards to how he deals with the righteous and the unrighteous. In an eternal sense, only the wicked will be judged eternally. God will not eternally judge the righteous along with the wicked. It's only the wicked that will be judged eternally. 
So in that sense, Abraham has the wrong thinking because these are temporal judgments. But he does have the right heart attitude or heart posture or the right spirit, so to speak, in his prayer. Abraham goes on. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Did you notice in verse 24 just one thing that he said? Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? See, at this point, Abraham is not only pleading for the righteous, which would obviously include Lot and his family. He goes on to further ask that if the Lord would simply just be merciful and patient and spare the whole city for the sake of the righteous. So it's not just the righteous he's praying for now. He's saying, would you spare the whole city as well for the sake of the righteous if there are so many righteous? And then he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or do what is right? This is not, you know, Abraham wondering, oh, I, I wonder if God is really just and right. No, this is a rhetorical question. He's actually affirming the righteousness of God. He's affirming the character of God. He has a zeal for God's name. And he's saying, Lord, you always do right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes is the answer. So he's saying, Lord, you always do right. Now, help me understand that now in the context of how you show mercy and justice. That if there are 50 righteous, would you spare the whole city? You know, perhaps he's thinking, you know, so long as there's 50 righteous people who follow the Lord and the Lord spares the city, then there's at least still some more opportunity for them to repent and turn to the Lord. Perhaps that's what he's thinking. As he's saying, for the sake of the righteous, would you spare the city? Verse 26, the Lord replies, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. You know, I find it interesting. See, the Lord knows there are not 50 righteous. He knows that. And yet the Lord is engaging with Abraham. And he's graciously saying, yes, even if there are just 50 in the city, I will spare the whole city. And just think about this for a moment. Despite Abraham's wrong thinking, that in temporal judgments, or the, you know, it's wrong for God to uh, judge the righteous this way, despite wrongly thinking that there's probably even 50 people in Sodom, the Lord is still graciously engaging with him, even though the Lord knows exactly what is going on and what he will do. He's really inviting Abraham to converse with him, to be open with him, to be intimate with him. And so that as he opens his heart to the Lord and as he thinks through the character of God, he's beginning to know the Lord more and more and beginning to depend on the Lord. And what we begin to see here is also something of the mercy of the Lord. Where the Lord says, yeah, if there's 50 righteous people too, I will spare the entire city. Now Abraham continues in his petition, verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. 
Oh, Abraham's going to petition and petition and petition before the Lord. He has more questions. But he's not being arrogant here. He knows he has an intimate relationship with the Lord. But he's not flippant in his approach. He's acknowledging he's dust and ashes. What is that? He's acknowledging he's just a creature made from the dust. And he's acknowledging that he is sinful, deserving of judgment. Because what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah in a little bit? They're going to be burnt up and they're going to become ashes. So Abraham is saying, Lord, I'm just dust. I'm just a creature. I'm just as much deserving of your judgment to be turned into ash. So he's not coming pridefully. He's, he's humbly coming before the Lord. He recognizes his place before the Lord. But he knows there's nothing he can do. He has to depend on the Lord and depend on the very character of the Lord. You know, prayer, there's lots of good things about prayer and we are commanded to pray as well. You know, one of the other things that prayer does, it humbles us. See, because when we come to him and there are things in our life where, which is out of our control, we can just plead according to God's character that he would do according to his character. Because there's nothing we can do about it. It's a very humbling thing. A, a person who is regular in prayer would find it hard to be prideful and think much of himself. And here now, Abraham recognizing, hey, this is what he is. He's a creature. He's deserving of judgment. Now he's thinking of others. He's thinking of his role to be a blessing toward others. That God's plan is to bless the nations. And so he wants others to experience the mercy of God that has been shown to him as well. And so he continues to plead with the Lord. But what's interesting is, the, the number of righteous people keep reducing. And perhaps this is because as he's thinking more and more about Sodom, he realizes how wicked a city that is. And he realizes, oh, maybe there's not going to be 50, maybe 40, maybe 35, maybe 30, maybe 20. And so he goes on. Let me just read this quickly. Verses 28 to 33. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he said to him, spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, O Lord, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So you see something of the God is a just God and yet he's a merciful God where he says, yes, even if there is 10 righteous people, I will spare for their sake the whole city. But the reality is there was not even 10 righteous people in Sodom. And I want you to think of the people of Sodom just for a second. They had experienced something of the power of God. You say, when, where, how? Remember Genesis 14? Where Kedileoma, the, the great Mesopotamian king with the other three came and attacked the kings of the valley. And the people of Sodom were taken as hostages. And then Abraham as a kingly warrior figure with his 318 men go and fight against these superpower kings. And he wins. 
And remember, as they come back, Abraham has this meeting with the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, they, they commune together and they praise God and they say, It is the Lord God, who has the Lord Most High, who has brought about this victory, who has brought about this deliverance for you, Abraham. You didn't do it yourself. And Abraham acknowledges that. And the king of Sodom was right there. And the people of Sodom were right there. And they would have heard all these things. And yet, the king and the people hardened their heart and rejected the way of the Lord. And, and that was quite a few years ago. And God had been patient with Sodom and Gomorrah all this while. And now they've hardened their heart and hardened their heart and hardened their heart. Now they've, it's come to a point where that, that their sin has come to a point of no return. There's not even ten righteous people in this place. And what we will see in the next chapter is that God will not spare this place. He will indeed bring down his judgment on this wicked and unrighteous people and he will be just for doing that because they rightly deserved it. But here's the thing though. Even though Abraham you know, was misguided in some of the things that he said in his prayer, he had a zeal for God and God's glory. He was thinking about others and with whatever he knew, he was praying that back to God. And God answers his prayer. Because he spares Lot and his family. He spares the righteous. But he does destroy the rest of the city. Because there was not even ten in that place. What does that mean for us? Can I just say this? That we would come to our Lord and even though we can sometimes be misguided in our prayers, so long as it's informed by the word of God and the character of God, we come and plead with our Lord and cry out to Him. He invites that from us. And as we do that, as we depend on him, we begin to know him more and more. We depend on him more and more rather than depending on ourselves. And that's always a good thing because we depend on ourselves, listen to our wicked hearts. What's that? The path of destruction. We don't want that. And even though God can achieve all these things without prayer, he didn't need Abraham to pray this prayer to save Lot. And yet that is the very means that he will use to save Lot. Because when we come to Genesis 19, it very specifically says the Lord saves Lot because he remembered Abraham. Isn't that wonderful? That God would condescend this way, that he would invite us to commune with him and to petition before him so that then he can use us through our prayers to accomplish his plans and purposes that he had already planned from eternity past. Oh, that we would be prayerful and that we would be persistent in prayer and not removed from God and to not want to pray. Let me just say just one more thing and I'll end here. See, the big message here is that rhetorical question that Abraham says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right. Do you believe that, brother, sister? 
that God will always do only what is right. That he will never turn a blind eye to evil. He will never manipulate the facts to suit his whim and fancy. Nor he will just justly mete out his judgments. He will always do what is right. Now perhaps you're sitting here and if you're a believer you've experienced some deep trials. Maybe you've experienced it in the past or you're experiencing right now. I want to tell you God has done you no wrong. God has done you no wrong. Do you understand that, Christian? God will always do only what is right. Perhaps you've been through some terrible things. Perhaps you've suffered at the hands of evil men even. Perhaps you've lost a loved one in a terrible way. You can be sure of this, that God has done no injustice. He has done you no wrong. And for the people who have done injustice and horrible things to you, if justice is not served on this earth, you can be assured that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And so no matter what you go through in life, be assured, Christian, that God will always do only what is right and he will never do you wrong. Now let me just say this. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian, those words that God will do only what is right and just should be scary words for you. See, because God is just and right and you are a sinner, you stand condemned before him. But here's the good news. That God in his kindness and his grace sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. Who lived a life perfectly loving God and perfectly loving neighbor. Who lived a life perfectly according to the way of the Lord. Who lived a life in perfect righteousness and justice. And then he died on the cross for sinful people like you and me, bearing the penalty and the judgment of God on himself for sinners like you and me. And then he died and then he rose again to provide a way by which sinners like you and me can be made right with God. You see, it wasn't for, you know, Abraham pleaded, oh, for the sake of ten righteous, would you spare the wicked? When in reality, when you look at the world, there was not even ten all throughout history. But there was one righteous man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And for his sake, for those of us who trust in Jesus and have turned away from our sin and are following him, we have been saved. Let me just read 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, in Jesus, 
we might become the righteousness of God. Or as 2 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Maybe this morning as we hear the words that God will do only what is right, may we with our hearts and our minds say, Amen to that. Let us be joyful in that and hopeful in that. And knowing God will always do what is right. May it cause us to worship Him, to live according to the way of the Lord, and help us to be, and let it also cause us to be thinking about others who will face the justice of God if they forsake Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you will always do what is just and right. Help us through the difficulties of life as we draw near to you and you draw near to us. Help us to know you more and more and to submit to that and build us in our dependence on you, our reliance on you, and help us to, as a result, give you glory. We thank you much for our Lord Jesus and what he's done on the cross for us. We thank you for the enabling of the Holy Spirit to now live rightly, to represent righteousness as we walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We thank you, Lord, for this. We look forward to the day when Jesus returns. Until then, help us to be faithful to you. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.